Let me hear you say, yee-haw. Isn't that fun? Thank you, praise team, for the way you keep it fresh in this place. This morning, you'll find uh, really a new handout. The weekend update has changed. It's become much more compact and simple, uh, easy to read. It's right, this which was handed out to you today. And on the back, instead of a separate page of sermon notes, it's right there. Uh, I just want to point out where that is. That's in a new place this week. And this is a new format. We're going to keep it simple like this, but once a month we'll print a weekly, a monthly newsletter that'll have all the detail that you're used to about all the ministries that are going on in our church. So this next March the 3rd will be the first Sunday of that month, and that monthly publication with all the detail will be available. Uh, But we thought this was more than enough to chew over week by week. So uh, here you have uh, a new bulletin, and I just wanted to point out where the message notes were. If you think those are missing, they're actually there, just in a different place. We've been studying real disciples here, a revealing look at who they were, who we are, and who we can be in in light of that study. Next week, we'll be studying uh, the second Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon, known as Simon the Zealot, to distinguish him from Simon Peter. Uh, Next week, we'll be on Simon. Today, we're looking at Levi, who uh, called himself Matthew. And coming up this Easter at our Living Lord's Supper, we want to point out who will be playing Matthew at that point. And it's this guy right over here in the blue. I played that person myself several years ago, and my arms were sore at the end of the, the, uh, the production. But, the, but that, that's Matthew there in, in the blue. Uh, we'll blow him up here for you. Uh, that's Matthew, who was um, named Levi, but who called himself, and many others came to call him uh, Matthew. Uh, we'll be referring back to uh, the story of his... Um, conversion, his uh, following of Christ, his call to follow Christ in his own uh, gospel that bears his name, Matthew, and that'll be in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. But I wanted to start today um, because Matthew only refers to himself as Matthew, but in Luke, we hear probably what was his given name, Levi. If you'll turn there to Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. And after that, he went out, he meaning Jesus, and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and the sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My name is Levi. I was a real disciple of Jesus Christ, just as you are. 
I called myself in my own gospel, Matthew. Because by the time Jesus found me, Levi and being a tax collector were almost a contradiction of terms in themselves. An oxymoron. I was one who knew the calling, the calling of Jesus to those who are sinners. I threw a sinner's party. And at that party, I heard a sinner's vindication. But at the same time, I also heard Jesus rebuking those who had seen themselves no longer as sinners, no longer beggars for mercy or grace. He rebuked those that were self-righteous with the same words. And it wasn't because of Jesus' miracles. There are many in that very chapter where I write of my calling. It wasn't because of His miracles that He got in trouble with others. It was because of His message. I've come to call sinners. Given that description, is He calling you? He was not only defending those that He was having dinner with that day at my party. He was also calling those who felt so self-righteous that they could no longer see the sinner of themselves. That in some sense, they were one beggar telling another where they might find grace. Only they were silent. Their lips were filled with criticism, not invitation. I was a tax collector. And that makes me probably the most notorious sinner among all those that he called to be in his twelve. A tax collector. It was a word spoken almost synonymous with sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Harlots and sinners. It wasn't so much a description as it was an epithet. Because I was a tax collector, I was seen as a traitor by my own people. I would be empowered to take taxes for Rome. And I would give Rome what was due them, but I was also free to take whatever else I wanted. I I had that unlimited power. I came to be hated as as a traitor to my own people, the Jews. And certainly I was a Jew. How else could I bear the name Levi? Levi? Of the family of the Levites? That tribe in Israel that was the most devoted to their God? Those who kept the temple? Those from whom priests were called? A Levite? Become a traitor. In the eyes of others, I was rich, but I was also wretched. As traffic picked up around my tax booth there just outside of Capernaum along the road where everyone had to pass and where I would exact those taxes, I noticed the crowd starting to swell through that tax booth and I soon learned that it was because a new teacher and healer and prophet was in town. They called him Jesus. I would have liked to have gotten into the synagogue and heard what he had to teach and what he had to say, but the synagogue was not open to folks like me. 
I was a tax collector. Banned from the synagogue, banned from worship at the temple. But what I overheard from a distance from the back of the crowd intrigued me. I was impressed with this man's integrity. With the radical message that he shared of the love of God. But what I overheard as a cast-off in the back of the crowd, though I noticed him, I didn't expect him to notice me. One day as he was leaving with his disciples going out of town, he stopped in my tax booth. It was necessary. It was required. I thought he would resent it like anyone else. But instead of looking past me as if I was a non-person like so many others looked at me, he, he noticed me. And he called me by name. And his words were simply, follow me. I was shocked that in this Jesus, God was choosing me, an unlikely ambassador, for anything good. Perhaps the double shock is that as a man of many, many poor decisions, I didn't hesitate when Jesus said, follow me. My decision was decisive. I saw that opportunity to turn and go another direction, or a rare opportunity, and I was not going to pass it up. Are you a person that's made some bad decisions? Do you know what it is to be entrapped by those decisions and feel like there's no way to turn from them? There's no way out. Bad decisions have a domino effect, don't they? Sometimes we can come to feel helpless in the momentum of the results and the consequences of where our decisions have led us. We can't go back and make things right at that job. We wouldn't be welcome there. The divorce is now final. The kids have been wounded and written us off. Ever been one of those that realized far too late the domino effect of bad decisions? Well, if that's you, then that was also me. And the Jesus that gave me a new chance, the Jesus who was compassionate to me, the most notorious of sinners, will be merciful to you as well. I was born Levi. According to Mark 2.14, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, my little brother James, James the Less, James Little, he, he was also, according to the Scriptures, a son of Alphaeus. But it made sense to distinguish him in that way, the son of Alphaeus, because there was another James in our bunch. There wasn't another Levi or another Matthew. James, you know, the... Uh, the brother of John, uh, the sons of thunder. They needed to distinguish James the less from James the greater, but, but Matthew, why did he bother to let you know who my dad was? The son of Alphaeus. Many think that my younger brother James was a zealot. 
Imagine two sons in the same family. One a militant nationalist supporting the Jews, and the other the most despicable traitor among the Jews. Can you see what that must have done to my family? Do you know what it is not to talk to a brother for years? Not to be able to share a word without tempers flaring and carnage being the result. Well, somehow, Jesus called us both. And He accepted us both. And somehow, in Jesus, my brother and I, found the power to forgive one another and walk together as partners in in the Gospel. That's unlikely for guys like us. We came up in a pretty proud family. A father named Alphaeus, whose parents apparently had fallen into the fashion of the day and given him a Greek name, was reclaiming his heritage when he named me Levi. It meant that we were of the tribe of Levi, that we had a a very precious heritage, that we were a somebody. Levi would have reminded the whole world of that precious heritage. To be one of the tribe of the most devoted to God. Those set aside to be His priests. But how many of you have ever known the presence of a good name? To be known in the community as someone from that family that everyone reveres. To be the kind of kid that everyone else expects to do the right thing. Levi. Preacher's kid. You know what it is for everyone else even to manipulate and tease you because they don't have that same pressure. They, they, they can compromise. And so they paint you into a corner. Anybody here know what it's like to want to show them? To want to rewrite that, that straight jacket that they're putting on you by making some decisions that are darn well your own. I I, I was Levi. Did you hear what that means in Hebrew? Little preacher. Thank you, Dad. Well, finally, I'd had enough of it. And I started making some decisions on my own. I saw that those with money had, had more opportunities in this world, and I saw the way to make the most money, and that was to side with Rome and to become a tax collector. But I was still one that came from a very, very proud family. They, they saw that me and my brother got the very best of educations. It takes an education, you know, to be a tax collector. You probably have to speak at least three different languages to be able to converse with the people that are coming through the booth. You need to be able to keep records and keep them accurately. You need to be able to communicate with officials. And I had that kind of education. I knew the power of the pen. And though Christ would someday call me to use that pen, 
in an entirely different way. Not to curse my Jewish friends, but to actually bless them with the Gospel. In these early days, I decided to use all those resources for my own selfish ends. I knew what it was to be an outsider, to be picked on, to be bullied. I was up for the whole routine of what it would cost, I thought, to become a tax collector. But once I became a tax collector, there was no turning back. It's amazing how many options I didn't see closing to me before I made that decision became obvious afterwards. Who hires a thief? It seemed that with that one choice, my whole life got in a rut. And if I ever gave up being a tax collector, you can believe there were many opportunists in line behind me to, to take over. It seemed my one option, and I was hanging on to it. Not just because of the, the practical sides of that that I've talked about, but also just for the sake of the pride. I came from a proud family. And, and once I became a tax collector and, and knew the disdain of everyone else around me, well, have you, have you ever made a bad decision and just wanted to keep on going as if somehow you could fool all those around you that knew you had made a bad decision, that, that somehow you knew something they didn't? You know? And then that's another bad decisions. You just keep on making them. There's a momentum there to that. And, and there's, a, there's a pride underneath that doesn't want to add the last vote to everyone else's to say, yeah, I was wrong. And if ever I turned, I thought I would just give in to all that condemnation, all that judgment. Then where would I be? And then something happened I never anticipated. I got a vote. One single vote from someone who still believed in me. He walked into the loneliness and the isolation of my tax booth. And with everyone else listening, he looked me in the eye as if to say, I choose you. Stand up and follow me. Walk away from those bad decisions. Trust me. One still believed in me. And it was this prophet and teacher. It was Jesus Himself. Well, I thank God that at that point my bad decisions had not so paralyzed me that, that I had no confidence to make a decision at all. You know, you can get there. You could have blown it so many times that even something that looks good, you don't trust anymore. But if what you're deliberating about is whether or not to follow Jesus, never a bad decision. I found out personally 
And I thank God that in those moments, somehow there was still enough grace inside to connect with something that helped me be decisive when the opportunity presented itself. It was me who wrote, you can't serve God and money. I heard those words as they tripped off Jesus' lips and I thought, yeah, that's me. You can only have one, Lord. And you only have one choice. And that one choice is yours. Be decisive. Don't let your bad decisions in the past make you indecisive now. Now some of you may be saying, well, you know, you are the only tax collector of the twelve. Maybe you're just one of those rare exceptions. You were lucky. But Jesus wouldn't notice me. You don't know my past. You don't know my labels. God would not trust me to be one of His ambassadors. And I'll tell you, you're wrong. That it was not an exception to the rule. With Jesus, it is the rule. I've come not to call the righteous sinners. Other Gospels added sinners to repentance. And that waters it down a bit, I think. Because in order to know that you're in radical need of the grace of God, you must first recognize yourself as a sinner. And those of us who have grown used to seeing ourselves as righteous in comparison to someone else, Rarely know the kind of desperation that's necessary to fully trust in God. And so Jesus said the the sinners and the tax collectors and the harlots are closer to God than closer to the kingdom and coming into the kingdom through the door which was Himself and coming to Him than, than those who were righteous that took offense when He said, I've come to call the sinners as if they weren't one. Jesus called sinners. Jesus calls sinners like me. I wish you could have seen the crowd that was there at my house that afternoon. Let's just say they were colorful. They were the, the kinds of friends that were the only friends that would hang out with a wretch like me. And I, I would have loved to have invited them to synagogue, <laughs> but they knew what kind of reception they'd receive there. Some of them had been there, done that, got the t shirt, decided that wasn't for them. To be treated as, as almost an alien, as someone that was different than everyone else there. If it was the same kind of crowd this day, they'd probably have tattoos and body piercings and do-rags and illegitimate money in their pockets. Those were the friends I invited to Jesus. 
And I invited them to Jesus because I dared to believe that they would receive the same reception from him that I did. I went out on a limb. You understand these crowds don't often hang together. You've been to a wedding. There's a crowd that leaves early and a crowd that stays late. And rarely do those two crowds hang out together. Oh, don't look at me with those blank stares. You know what I'm talking about. We have ways of drawing lines in this world. And when we gather around Jesus, we become all the same. We become people in need of a Savior. We become those that are loved, even though we're not lovable. We become those that are accepted, even before we're acceptable. We become those that are assured of forgiveness, even while we're still gaining the courage to confess. That's the way it was around Jesus. And that party that afternoon proved that I hadn't blown it. The Pharisees came in. They, they said, why does your teacher eat with sinners and, and, and drunkards and that type of folk? You know? And I thought, oh no, I've blown it. I've blown it. I, I've, I've, I've tarnished his reputation. Here I am wanting to be an ambassador and bring my friends in, but I didn't understand I didn't anticipate the way others would respond, and I cringed for a moment. I held my breath. I wondered how the disciples were going to respond. They were the ones that they were grumbling to, but Jesus overheard and made sure his voice was heard when he stopped the whole party. And he said, who needs a physician but the sick? For I have come. Not to call those who are healthy, but sinners. Those who will turn their lives over to me as a construction site of my love and of my grace. And I thought, I didn't blow it. (laughs) I didn't blow it. That, That was his heart all along. And it wasn't just for me. It was for everyone. And he didn't care who heard it. He wanted all to hear it. Because in his heart, he was hoping those self-righteous Pharisees would come to realize that they needed him as much as we did. And until they did, their lives were stuck. I'm the only one who says in my Gospel, after that moment, go and learn what it means. That I desire compassion, not sacrifice. That was a paraphrase of of Micah 6. Where God's talking about how all the sacrifices are not what He's really looking for. The sacrifices were a communication tool. 
You see what Jesus did, what God did in His mercy and His grace. He was just like Jesus. He, he, he gave them a way to recognize their sin and then to trust His mercy to forgive it. And it was absolute mercy for us to believe that our sin that offends a holy God could somehow be covered not by the death of the one who committed that sin, which is what the math requires, but it could be covered by a substitutionary sacrifice, an animal that was sacrificed. And so the lesson was taught, sin is serious. A holy God will not look the other way. A holy God wants to make us righteous. But in that day, people started bringing their sacrifices and thinking they had bought their way into God's grace. That somehow, because they were sacrificing, their sacrifice earned it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Instead of realizing that that was just God's requirement that the communication of our sin would be recognized and the communication of His overflowing grace, we could begin to fathom I had been a student of the Old Testament Scriptures. You don't come up being called Levi and in a family like mine without knowing the Scriptures. Do you know that I quoted the Old Testament 99 times in my Gospel? That's more than Mark and Luke and John put together. But I didn't come by that knowledge after I was a tax collector. It had been ingrained in me early. And somehow all those childhood memories started to gel around this truth that I was hearing from Jesus. And I realized that those things that I dismissed in the past as fable, legend, lore, were the truth that He was come to reveal. If your sacrifice, if, if you're still trying to buy your way into God by, by what you do, if your righteousness is something that you, that you tally and that you keep score with, then you're likely to become one of those that requires of others the same price that you have paid. Who's toughest on smokers around you today? Is it not those that have already paid the price of giving them up? The principles are the same. And God in that Scripture was saying, I don't require of you sacrifice. What I require of you is that grateful heart that desires justice, doing the right thing, that's humble, that walks humbly with your God. That's what grace always makes of those who truly receive it. It doesn't make us proud. Like my family had been, it, it changes the whole orientation of our personality. We become someone who's humbled. Someone who can see in someone else the same wretchedness that lives in us minus the touch of the Master. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Y'all still have parties like I threw? Matthew parties? 
I think I overheard one as I came in today. A conversation cafe, you call it. A place where those who have yet to be convinced about the faith can share in discussion right alongside those that are convinced of the faith, that, that have the very character of Jesus, that can surprise those that maybe have yet to trust that word by being like Jesus Himself, who was always a surprise. <laughs> but some of you will ruin it. You'll sew up self-righteous. Glad that you know an answer that someone else doesn't. Offended that someone else could think differently than you. Are you ready to throw a party like I did? That Life Tree Cafe, as I understand it right now, is something that's just happening here. We're getting a feel for it amongst ourselves as we learn to converse with that kind of openness and that kind of kindness and that kind of trust in the Lord that somehow He will make Himself real through us in such a way that tax collectors and sinners like myself might believe that we've got a vote somewhere we weren't counting on. But Matthew parties never happen at the synagogue. The very folks you're trying to reach know they're not welcome there. It would be a complete surprise to them to find out that they are welcome there. And so your Life Tree Cafe, like, like my party, needs to leave this place and go some other place. A restaurant nearby. A mall. A place where people who usually are looked past can find someone interested in them. Willing to hear from them. And become part of that holy discussion that makes tax collectors and sinners those who are known to flock around the presence of Jesus. <laughs> Powerful things can happen. If you'll dare throw the party. Incredible things can happen. The very people who hated me and who I had learned to brace myself against became those for whom God grew a heart in me that could not be satisfied until I had written the first Hebrew gospel. The story of Jesus God took my pen and He redeemed it from the carnage it used to cause, from the greed it used to serve. He gave me the privilege of letting that pen be to His glory. I had to tell the world that this Jesus was not the religious leader that they expected. He was the Lord of life. And He came to give it to us all so do you have regrets? Join the club. Are you a notorious sinner? I, I, probably not. But you know someone who is. Are you burdened by your betrayals? Think that's a path that has no, no turn off, no fork. And I want to point out to you who just walked into your reality 
His name is Jesus. And He didn't come into this world to condemn. He came to save. Do you hear what I'm saying? Don't count yourself out. You're invited to the mercy party. And once you're there, you'll long for every friend you've got to know that fellowship. You're invited to the mercy party. RSVP. RSVP. Respond, s'il vous plaît. Respond, please. Respond. Would you come to the Christ who has come looking for you? Would you turn from whatever pit you're in and take up His invitation to follow Him? Would you come to Christ this morning? If so, we invite you to these altars to meet Him here as many of the rest of us have. Or maybe you're already walking with Christ. Maybe you want to be a part of representing His heart to folks like me a little more faithfully. Maybe this invitation that's yours this morning, you want to share. Next Sunday is Friend Sunday. Are you ready to be decisive as I was? Then let's stand. Let's sing the conclusion of this service and if in it you choose to come to Christ, we invite you to these altars. To join our church, we invite you forward to these same altars. Or if God even now has laid upon your heart the name of some friend who thinks they're beyond the reach of God's grace, would you be the one that gives them the news that Jesus has come seeking them as well. Amen.